Section 23 of The Idea of Progress by J. B. Berry. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 19. Progress in the Light of Evolution. 1. In the sixties of the nineteenth century, the idea of progress entered upon the third period of its history. During the first period, up to the French Revolution, it had been treated rather casually. It was taken for granted and received no searching examination either from philosophers or from historians. In the second period, its immense significance was apprehended, and a search began for a general law which would define and establish it. The study of sociology was founded, and at the same time the impressive results of science, applied to the conveniences of life, advertised the idea. It harmonized with the notion of development, which had become current both in natural science and in metaphysics. Socialists and other political reformers appealed to it as a gospel. By 1850 it was a familiar idea in Europe, but was not yet universally accepted as obviously true. The notion of social progress had been growing in the atmosphere of the notion of biological development, but this development still seemed a highly precarious speculation. The fixity of species and the creation of man, defended by powerful interests and prejudices, were attacked but were not shaken. The hypothesis of organic evolution was much in the same position as the Copernican hypothesis in the 16th century. Then, in 1859, Darwin intervened, like Galileo. The appearance of the origin of species changed the situation by disproving definitely the dogma of fixity of species and assigning real causes for transformism. What might be set aside before as a brilliant guess was elevated to the rank of a scientific hypothesis and the following twenty years were enlivened by the struggle around the evolution of life, against prejudices chiefly theological, resulting in the victory of the theory. The origin of species led to the third stage of the fortunes of the idea of progress. We saw how the heliocentric astronomy, by dethroning man from his privileged position in the universe of space and throwing him back on his own efforts, had helped that idea to compete with the idea of a busy providence. He now suffers a new degradation within the compass of his own planet. Evolution, shearing him of his glory as a rational being specially created to be the lord of the earth, traces a humble pedigree for him. And this second degradation was the decisive fact which has established the reign of the idea of progress. 2. Evolution itself, it must be remembered, does not necessarily mean, applied to society, the movement of man to a desirable goal. It is a neutral scientific conception compatible either with optimism or with pessimism. According to different estimates, it may appear to be a cruel sentence or a guarantee of steady amelioration, and it has been actually interpreted in both ways. In order to base progress on evolution, two distinct arguments are required. If it could be shown that social life obeys the same general laws of evolution as nature, and also that the process involves an increase of happiness, then progress would be as valid a hypothesis as the evolution of living forms. Darwin had concluded his treatise with these words, quote, As all the living forms of life are the lineal descendants of those which lived long before the Silurian epoch, we may feel certain that the ordinary succession by generation has never once been broken, and that no cataclysm has desolated the whole world. Hence we may look with some confidence to a secure future of equally inappreciable length, and as natural selection works solely by and for the good of each being, all corporeal and mental environments will tend to progress towards perfection. Here the evolutionist struck the note of optimism. 
and he suggested that laws of progress would be found in other quarters than those where they had hitherto been sought. The ablest and most influential development of the argument from evolution to progress was the work of Spencer. He extended the principle of evolution to sociology and ethics, and was the most conspicuous interpreter of it in an optimistic sense. He had been an evolutionist long before Darwin's decisive intervention, and in 1851 he had published his Social Statics, which, although he had not yet worked out the evolutionary laws which he began to formulate soon afterwards, and was still a theist, exhibits the general trend of his optimistic philosophy. Progress here appears as the basis of a theory of ethics. The title indicates the influence of Comte, but the argument is sharply opposed to the spirit of Comte's teaching, and sociology is treated in a new way. Footnote social statics or the conditions essential to human happiness specified and the first of them developed is the full title End of footnote. spencer begins by arguing that the constancy of human nature so frequently alleged is a fallacy for change is the law of all things of every single object as well as of the universe nature in its infinite complexity is ever growing to a new development it would be strange if in this universal mutation Man alone were unchangeable, and it is not true. He also obeys the law of indefinite variation. Contrast the houseless savages with Newton's and Shakespeare's. Between these extremes there are countless degrees of difference. If, then, humanity is indefinitely variable, perfectibility is possible. In the second place, evil is not a permanent necessity. For all evil results from the non-adaptation of the organism to its conditions. This is true of everything that lives and it is equally true that evil perpetually tends to disappear. In virtue of an essential principle of life, this non-adaptation of organisms to their conditions is ever being rectified, and one or both continue to be modified until the adaptation is perfect. And this applies to the mental as well as to the physical sphere. In the present state of the world, men suffer many evils, and this shows that their characters are not yet adjusted to the social state. Now the qualification requisite for the social state is that each individual shall have such desires only as may fully be satisfied without trenching upon the ability of others to obtain similar satisfaction. This qualification is not yet fulfilled, because civilized man retains some of the characteristics which were suitable for the conditions of his earlier predatory life. He needed one moral constitution for his primitive state, he needs quite another for his present state. The resultant is a process of adaptation which has been going on for a long time, and will go on for a long time to come. Civilization represents the adaptations which have already been accomplished. Progress means the successive steps of the process. That by this process man will eventually become suited to his mode of life, Spencer has no doubts. All excess and deficiency of suitable faculties must disappear. In other words, all imperfection. Quote, the ultimate development of the ideal man is logically certain, as certain as any conclusion in which we place the most implicit faith, for instance, that all men will die. Here is the theory of perfectibility asserted, on new grounds, with a confidence not less assured than that of Condorcet or Godwin. Progress, then, is not an accident, but a necessity. Civilization is a part of nature, being a development of man's latent capabilities under the action of favorable circumstances which were certain at some time or other to occur. Here Spencer's argument assumes a final cause. The ultimate purpose of creation, he asserts, is to produce the greatest amount of happiness 
and to fulfill this aim it is necessary that each member of the race should possess faculties enabling him to experience the highest enjoyment of life yet in such a way as not to diminish the power of others to receive like satisfaction beings thus constituted cannot multiply in a world tenanted by inferior creatures these therefore must be dispossessed to make room and to dispossess them aboriginal man must have an inferior constitution to begin with he must be predatory he must have the desire to kill in general given an unsubdued earth and the human being appointed to overspread and occupy it then the laws of life being what they are no other series of changes than that which has actually occurred could have occurred the argument might be put in a form free from the assumption of a final cause and without introducing the conception of a divine providence which in this work spencer adopted though in his later philosophy it was superseded by the conception of the unknowable existing behind all phenomena. But the role of the divine ruler is simply to set in motion immutable forces to realize his design. Quote, in the moral as in the material world, accumulated evidence is gradually generating the conviction that events are not at bottom fortuitous, but that they are wrought out in a certain inevitable way by unchanging forces. Close quote. The optimism of Spencer's view could not be surpassed. After patient study, he writes, quote, This chaos of phenomena into the midst of which he, man, was born has begun to generalize itself to him. Close quote. Instead of confusion, he begins to discern, quote, The dim outlines of a gigantic plan. No accidents, no chance, but everywhere order and completeness. One by one, exceptions vanish, and all becomes systematic. Always towards perfection is the mighty movement, towards a complete development and a more unmixed good, subordinating in its universality all petty irregularities and fallings back, as the curvature of the earth subordinates mountains and valleys. Even in evils the student learns to recognize only a struggling beneficence, but above all he is struck with the inherent sufficingness of things. But the movement towards harmony, the elimination of evil, will not be effected by idealists imposing their constructions upon the world or by authoritarian governments. It means gradual adaptation, gradual psychological change, and its life is individual liberty. It proceeds by the give and take of opposed opinions. Guizot had said, progress and at the same time resistance. And Spencer conceives that resistance is beneficial, so long as it comes from those who honestly think that the institutions they defend are really the best and the proposed innovations absolutely wrong. It will be observed that Spencer's doctrine of perfectibility rests on an entirely different basis from the doctrine of the 18th century. It is one thing to deduce it from an abstract psychology which holds that human nature is unresistingly plastic in the hands of the legislator and the instructor. It is another to argue that human nature is subject to the general law of change and that the process by which it slowly but continuously tends to adapt itself more and more to the conditions of social life, children inheriting the acquired aptitudes of their parents, points to an ultimate harmony. Here, profitable legislation and education are auxiliary to the process of unconscious adaptation, and respond to the psychological changes in the community, changes which reveal themselves in public opinion. 3. During the following ten years, Spencer was investigating the general laws of evolution and planning his synthetic philosophy, which was to explain the development of the universe. He aimed at showing that laws of change are discoverable which control all phenomena alike, inorganic, biological, psychical, and social. 
in the light of this hypothesis, the actual progression of humanity is established as a necessary fact, a sequel of the general cosmic movement and governed by the same principles. And, if that progression is shown to involve increasing happiness, the theory of progress is established. The first section of the work, First Principles, appeared in 1862. The biology, the psychology, and finally the sociology followed during the next twenty years. And the synthesis of the world process which these volumes lucidly and persuasively developed probably did more than any other work, at least in England, both to drive home the significance of the doctrine of evolution and to raise the doctrine of progress to the rank of a commonplace truth in popular estimation, an axiom to which political rhetoric might effectively appeal. Many of those who were allured by Spencer's gigantic synthesis hardly realized that his theory of social evolution, of the gradual psychical improvement of the race, depends upon the validity of the assumption that parents transmit to their children faculties and aptitudes which they have themselves acquired. On this question, experts notoriously differ. Some day it will probably be definitely decided, and perhaps in Spencer's favor. But the theory of continuous psychical improvement by a process of nature encounters an obvious difficulty, which did not escape some critics of Spencer, in the prominent fact of history that every great civilization of the past progressed to a point at which, instead of advancing further, it stood still and declined, to become the prey of younger societies, or, if it survived, to stagnate. Arrest, decadence, stagnation has been the rule. It is not easy to reconcile this phenomenon with the theory of mental improvement. The receptive attitude of the public towards such a philosophy as Spencer's had been made possible by Darwin's discoveries, which were reinforced by the growing science of paleontology and the accumulating material evidence of the great antiquity of man. By the simultaneous advances of geology and biology, man's perspective in time was revolutionized, just as the Copernican astronomy had revolutionized his perspective in space. Many thoughtful and many thoughtless people were ready to discern as Huxley suggested, in man's, quote, long progress through the past, a reasonable ground of faith in his attainment of a nobler future, Close quote. The recorded portion of his long progress through the past was indeed not altogether pleasant to look back on for anyone gifted with imagination, and Winwood Reed, a young African traveler, exhibited it in a vivid book as a long-drawn-out martyrdom. But he was a disciple of Spencer, and his hopes for the future were as bright as his picture of the past was dark. The Martyrdom of Man, published in 1872, was so widely read that it reached an eighth edition twelve years later, and may be counted as one of the agencies which popularized Spencer's optimism. That optimism was not endorsed by all the contemporary leaders of thought. Lotze had asserted emphatically in 1864 that human nature will not change, and afterwards he saw no reason to alter his conviction. Quote, never one fold and one shepherd, never one uniform culture for all mankind, never universal nobleness. Our virtue and happiness can only flourish amid an active conflict with wrong. If every stumbling block were smoothed away, men would no longer be like men, but like a flock of innocent brutes, feeding on good things provided by nature as at the very beginning of their course. Close quote. Footnote. Microcosmos, English translation, page 300. The first German edition, three volumes, appeared in 1856-64. to 64. The third, from which the English translation was made, in 1876. Lotze was optimistic as to the durability of modern civilization. Quote, 
no one will profess to foreknow the future but as far as men may judge it seems that in our days there are greater safeguards than there were in antiquity against unjustifiable excesses and against the external forces which might endanger the continued existence of civilization Close quote. End of footnote. but even if we reject with spencer the old dictum endorsed by lotze as by fontenelle that human nature is immutable the dictum of ultimate harmony encounters the following objection if the social environment were stable it is easy to argue quote, it could be admitted that man's nature variable ex hypothesis could gradually adapt itself to it and that finally a definite equilibrium would be established but the environment is continually changing as the consequence of man's very efforts to adapt himself every step he takes to harmonize his needs and his conditions produces a new discord and confronts him with a new problem in other words there is no reason to believe that the reciprocal process which goes on in the growth of society between men's natures and the environment they are continually modifying will ever reach an equilibrium or even that as the character of the discords changes the suffering which they cause diminishes Close quote. in fact upon the neutral fact of evolution a theory of pessimism may be built up as speciously as a theory of optimism and such a theory was built up with great power and ability by the german philosopher e von hartmann whose philosophy of the unconscious appeared in eighteen sixty nine leaving aside his metaphysics and his grotesque theory of the destiny of the universe we see here and in his subsequent works how plausibly a convinced evolutionist could revive the view of rousseau that civilization and happiness are mutually antagonistic and that progress means an increase of misery huxley himself one of the most eminent interpreters of the doctrine of evolution did not in his late years at least entertain very sanguine views of mankind Quote, i know of no study which is so saddening as that of the evolution of humanity as it is set forth in the annals of history man is a brute only more intelligent than other brutes and even the best of modern civilizations appears to me to exhibit a condition of mankind which neither embodies any worthy ideal nor even possesses the merit of stability there may be some hope of a large improvement but otherwise he would welcome a kindly comet to sweep the whole affair away and he came to the final conclusion that such an improvement could only set in by deliberately resisting instead of cooperating with the processes of nature Quote, social progress means the checking of the cosmic process at every step and the substitution for it of another which may be called the ethical process Close quote footnote huxley considers progress exclusively from an ethical not from a new demonic point of view End of footnote. how in a few centuries can man hope to gain the mastery over the cosmic process which has been at work for millions of years the theory of evolution encourages no millennial anticipations i have quoted these views to illustrate that evolution lends itself to a pessimistic as well as to an optimistic interpretation the question whether it leads in a desirable direction or not is answered according to the temperament of the inquirer in an age of prosperity and self-complacency the affirmative answer was readily received and the term evolution attracted to itself in common speech the implications of value which belong to progress it may be noticed that the self-complacency of the age was promoted by the popularization of scientific knowledge a rapidly growing demand especially in england for books and lectures making the results of science accessible and interesting to the lay public is a remarkable feature of the second half of the nineteenth century and to supply this demand was a remunerative enterprise 
This popular literature explaining the wonders of the physical world was at the same time subtly flushing the imaginations of men with the consciousness that they were living in an era which, in itself vastly superior to any age of the past, need be burdened by no fear of decline or catastrophe, but trusting in the boundless resources of science might securely defy fate. 4. Thus, in the seventies and eighties of the last century, the idea of progress was becoming a general article of faith. Some might hold it in the fatalistic form that humanity moves in a desirable direction, whatever men do or may leave undone. Others might believe that the future will depend largely on our own conscious efforts, but that there is nothing in the nature of things to disappoint the prospect of steady and indefinite advance. The majority did not inquire too curiously into such points of doctrine, but received it in a vague sense as a comfortable addition to their convictions. But it became a part of the general mental outlook of educated people. When Mr. Frederick Harrison delivered in 1889 at Manchester an eloquent discourse on the New Era, in which the dominant note is the faith in human progress in lieu of celestial rewards of the separate soul, his general argument could appeal to immensely wider circles than the positivists whom he was specially addressing. The dogma, for a dogma it remains, in spite of the confidence of Comte or of Spencer that he had made it a scientific hypothesis, has produced an important ethical principle. Consideration for posterity has throughout history operated as a motive of conduct, but feebly, occasionally, and in a very limited sense. With the doctrine of progress, it assumes, logically, a preponderating importance. For the center of interest is transferred to the life of future generations, who are to enjoy conditions of happiness denied to us, but which our labors and sufferings are to help to bring about. If the doctrine is held in an extreme fatalistic form, then our duty is to resign ourselves cheerfully to sacrifices for the sake of unknown descendants, just as ordinary altruism enjoins the cheerful acceptance of sacrifices for the sake of living fellow creatures. Winwood Reed indicated this when he wrote, quote, Our own prosperity is founded on the agonies of the past. Is it therefore unjust that we also should suffer for the benefit of those who are to come? Close quote. But if it is held that each generation can by its own deliberate acts determine for good or evil the destinies of the race, then our duties towards others reach out through time as well as through space, and our contemporaries are only a negligible fraction of the neighbors to whom we owe obligations. The ethical end may still be formulated, with the utilitarians, as the greatest happiness of the greatest number. Only the greatest number includes, as Kidd observed, the members of generations yet unborn or unthought of. This extension of the moral code, if it is not yet conspicuous in treatises on ethics, has in late years been obtaining recognition in practice. 5. Within the last forty years, nearly every civilized country has produced a large literature on social science, in which indefinite progress is generally assumed as an axiom. But the law whose investigation Kant designated as the task for a Newton, which Saint-Simon and Comte did not find, and to which Spencer's evolutionary formula would stand in the same relation as it stands to the law of gravitation, remains still undiscovered. To examine or even glance at this literature, or to speculate how theories of progress may be modified by recent philosophical speculation, lies beyond the scope of this volume, which is only concerned with tracing the origin of the idea and its growth up to the time when it became a current creed. Looking back on the course of the inquiry, we note how the history of the idea has been connected with the growth of modern science, with the growth of rationalism, and with the struggle for political and religious liberty. The precursors, Baudin and Bacon, 
lived at a time when the world was consciously emancipating itself from the authority of tradition, and it was being discovered that liberty is a difficult theoretical problem. The idea took definite shape in France when the old scheme of the universe had been shattered by the victory of the new astronomy and the prestige of providence, cuncta superculio muentis, was paling before the majesty of the immutable laws of nature. There began a slow but steady reinstatement of the kingdom of this world. The otherworldly dreams of theologians, ceux qui reniaient la terre pour patrie, which had ruled so long, lost their power, and men's earthly home again insinuated itself into their affections, but with the new hope of its becoming a place fit for reasonable beings to live in. We have seen how the belief that our race is traveling towards earthly happiness was propagated by some eminent thinkers, as well as by some not very fortunate persons who had a good deal of time on their hands. And all these high priests and incense-bearers to whom the creed owes its success were rationalists, from the author of the Histoire des Oracles to the philosopher of the unknowable. Epilogue in achieving its ascendancy and unfolding its meaning, the idea of progress had to overcome a psychological obstacle which may be described as the illusion of finality. It is quite easy to fancy a state of society, vastly different from ours, existing in some unknown place like heaven. It is much more difficult to realize as a fact that the order of things with which we are familiar has so little stability that our actual descendants may be born into a world as different from ours as ours is from that of our ancestors of the Pleistocene age. The illusion of finality is strong. The men of the Middle Ages would have found it hard to imagine that a time was not far off in which the last judgment would have ceased to arouse any emotional interest. In the sphere of speculation, Hegel, and even Comte, illustrate this psychological limitation. They did not recognize that their own systems could not be final any more than the system of Aristotle or of Descartes. It is science, perhaps, more than anything else, the wonderful history of science in the last hundred years, that has helped us to transcend this illusion. But if we accept the reasonings on which the dogma of progress is based, must we not carry them to their full conclusion? In escaping from the illusion of finality, is it legitimate to exempt that dogma itself? Must not it, too, submit to its own negation of finality? Will not that process of change, for which progress is the optimistic name, compel progress, too, to fall from the commanding position in which it is now, with apparent security, enthroned? Esetai emar otan. A day will come, in the revolution of centuries, when a new idea will usurp its place as the directing idea of humanity. Another star, unnoticed now or invisible, will climb up the intellectual heaven, and human emotions will react to its influence, human plans respond to its guidance. It will be the criterion by which progress and all other ideas will be judged, and it too will have its successor. In other words, does not progress itself suggest that its value as a doctrine is only relative, corresponding to a certain not very advanced stage of civilization, just as providence in its day was an idea of relative value corresponding to a stage somewhat less advanced? Or will it be said that this argument is merely a disconcerting trick of dialectic, played under cover of the darkness in which the issue of the future is safely hidden by Horace's prudent god? End of section 23 End of the Idea of Progress, An Inquiry into its Origin and Growth by John Bagnell Barry.